Welcome to the Michelle Meow Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. Every Thursday, or, well, we try to do it every Thursday here at the Wolf. Commonwealth Club, uh, we, we record the Michelle Meow Show, which airs on the Progressive Voices Network, and the podcast is posted up at Commonwealth Club. Mm-hmm. And I do it with my co-host, John Zipper, who's today's moderator, and he's also the vice president of media for Commonwealth Club and the host of his own show, Week to Week Political Roundtable Talk. So basically, he's the uh, political geek that I need on the program to make it sound smart. (laughs) (laughs) Today's a little bit different. We've got a full panel, a great show for you, and so John and I are going to split up duties he is going to moderate the panel, and then later on, I will lead the Q&A part. So keep your questions, think of them, and then we'll open it up about 40 minutes into the program. You'll speak into this mic because we're recording today's program. Today's program is brought to you by the San Francisco LGBTQ Speakers Bureau, who generously has provided lunch for us uh, from Boudin, a San Francisco treat, or at least the sourdough part. (laughs) It is great bread. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now let's get started. I'll turn the program over to John Zipper. Well, thank you, Michelle. Thank you, everyone who is here in the room and everyone listening to us, of course. We have a great panel today to talk about something that was a, a, a landmark occurrence, and yet I think there's probably a generation or two of LGBTQ folks, as well as allies, who've never heard of this, especially if they're from outside of California. For example, I grew up in Wisconsin. I did not hear about this until the late 1980s, when I read an article about someone who had written this about it way back in 1978. Um, And that kind of set off a number of questions uh, that I've looked into over the years. And I'm going to ask those and a whole bunch of other questions to our esteemed panel today. So I want to introduce them. Uh, I think you know all or most of them already, but I'm going to start on the far end with Tom Amiano. Let me make sure I get this correct. I'm steamed. Yes. <laughs> As opposed to steamed, <laughs> re-steamed. He's here. He's, of course, like a former... A dim sum. <laughs> former California Assembly member, former president of the San Francisco School Board, and former president of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. He knows how to wield power. Tom Amiano, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Next to him is Gwen Craig former co-manager of the San Francisco's, excuse me, San Franciscans against Proposition 6, which is what the Briggs Initiative was officially <laughs> called, uh, former president of the Harvey Milk LGBT Club, Democratic Club, excuse me, and a former member of the San Francisco Police Commission. So glad you could join us, Glenn. Thank you. Glenn. Happy to be here. And next to me is Sue Englander. She's a historian. She's a lecturer in the, correct me if I get any of this wrong, mm-hmm. the History and Women and Gender Studies Departments at San Francisco State University, and she's a lecturer at the History and Labor and Community Studies Departments of City College of San Francisco. So welcome, Sue. Thank you. So I'm going to read a little bit of an excerpt of Proposition 6, known as the Briggs Initiative, named after John Briggs, who was an Orange County uh, legislator. And this initiative would have made that made anyone who is a public school teacher, a teacher's aide, administrator, or counselor they could be fired if they were found to have engaged in either, quote, public homosexual activity, unquote. And this was defined as an act of homosexual sex that was not discreet and not practiced in private, whether or not such an act at the time of its commission constituted a crime. And public homosexual conduct which was defined as, quote, the advocating, soliciting, imposing, encouraging, or promoting of public or public homosexual activity directed at or likely to come to the attention of school children and or other employees, unquote. So let me start and and go right back to that time. And I want to get all of you, each of your answers, but I'll maybe start at Tom and work back toward me. Where were you when you first heard about this, and what were your first thoughts? Well, uh, some of it was, uh, here we go again, um, because in San Francisco, we're a little more ahead of the curb. Uh, And we had actually gotten protection in 1975 for 
uh, gay teachers, and that's that's what uh, the late Hank Wilson, Ron Lanza, we were kind of at ground zero at that time. I was actually teaching then, and um, we were getting very upset by um, hearing all the homophobia that's attached um, uh, to teaching and, and out gay people, or, and uh, the most serious homophobic remarks I heard were not necessarily on the playground, although there was a lot of faggot and used that, those kind of pejoratives. It was in the teacher's lounge. And, you know, so the uh, the gay movement was burgeoning. You know, ha uh, Harvey was around. Um, and we put together kind of a ragtag group. And we said we are the Gay Teachers Coalition. Uh, we were so primitive in our approach. I didn't, I didn't know how to have a press conference. I had to ask a woman, uh, African-American uh, teacher, uh, Yvonne Gold. And I said, well, how the hell do you, what is a press conference? And she said, what, when, where, what? And uh, no Xeroxing, no no high tech we had mimeographs and we oh, yeah. on a drum and I was covered with the ink and <laughs> it was smudged and uh, I, I dropped these things off personally at the Chronicle and the Examiner um, and we had our press conference extremely nervous um, and most of the press was very snide this was like a, a freak show to cover they didn't and um, we tried to keep it together um, I want to give a shout out to Belva Davis she's still around she's one of the few African-American uh, women journalists even at that time and and so she handled it like a professional Mr. Amiano what, what is your position you know and all of a sudden I felt actualized because everything else was snide and he 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 and these were you know uh, reporters that you saw on TV one particular guy uh, who was very offensive was a Van Amberg. This is going way back. Um, uh, and so we, we were launched and um, uh, we went to the school board which was appointed and uh, we were denied uh, 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 denied um, publication in the school district newsletter. You know, it would say uh, Latino teachers meeting or, uh, or the PTA meeting. So I almost said the gay teachers were meeting. By the way, uh, it was very hard to find a place who would take us. And finally, it was family the FSA Family Services over there on Gough Street. And uh, one time we had a little meeting there, about four of us, and a new guy showed up, and he was from uh, the East Bay. Uh, and Harvey showed up. Uh, and needless to say, the guy from Contra Costa he was very handsome. And we were so pleased <laughs> that, you know, because we needed a lot of validation and, and all that. And, uh, uh, needless to say, the meeting was good, and guess who Harvey went home with? All right, so there. Because, <laughs> you know, that's always part of the dynamic. Uh, but, you know, uh, it was very serious. Um, uh, you know, it was a matter of life and death for a lot of people. The biggest pushback came back, uh, came from the closeted uh, gay teachers. Uh, that was very, very painful. We were radioactive to them. This was, a, you know, if you rock the boat, uh, you know, all those things are going to come uh, true. You know, people recruit, uh, you know, all the bullshit around what, what gay men did and all that. You know, and as you know, that Harvey's um, slogan was, I'm here to recruit you. And it was a direct you know, a, a, a direct response to, to that uh, nonsense. So we were able to go to the school board, we, uh, and they were appointed at the time, and we said we'd like to be in the non-discrimination clause of the school district. Um, and this, the board scoffed at us and held, held it over. Uh, so this was June of 75, and then we got as many people as we could there is a, uh, it's called Queer Blue Light. It was the first videos, um, you know, very, very, uh, uh, very, very primitive. I think there, it was a video, but it uh, was on a, a, a round wheel. And it's still around, uh, maybe in the archives. And we marched in front of the school district office, and we were joined mostly by our straight allies, uh, especially straight teachers. So I've always been grateful for that. And we made the newspapers, uh, a lot of stuff happened, and then about three weeks later, um, the school board voted on it, and it, we almost all fainted. They voted to include sexual wow. orientation. So a very small step, um, and, and, but a very important nose under the tent. And I learned immediately, uh, right after the euphoria of actually winning something like this, that... Um, uh, 
that was only the beginning of the battle because a resolution, as we all know now, you know, it's what happens at every school site, what principals do. So there are still quite a few um, efforts to undermine us. Uh, Hank and I, with others, started the Gay and Lesbian Speakers Bureau, um, uh, which eventually got taken over by Kuav, you know, so, and they gave it some um, gravitas because we were kind of, you know, we wanted to wing it. Um, so, uh, and you know, it was very powerful for someone who was teaching to say, I am gay, because uh, you know, you had to put your, you put your job on the line and, uh, and, and all that. Um, so one time we, we were at Mission High, and unbeknownst to us, the principal was sitting in the classroom, and uh, you know the kids were not prepared. We learned that too. So the first thing they they want to know, and pardon the language, is you know do you take it in the butt and everything? And we're like we're looking at that's not what we're you know here. Uh, so we, we had to polish our act. But what we didn't know is that the teacher was for lack of a better term, uh, uh, a Bible thumper and had invited us so that we would sink our own ship because she then gave an interview to, do you know the, exa uh, the examiner, the, um, uh, I get the examiner mixed up with the tabloid, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, the National Enquirer. Yeah, yeah, it was on the front page of the National Enquirer. It said, uh, a gay teacher teaches, a perverted teacher teaches gay positions to students. That was the, that was the head. And, and I thought, you know, there's my mother in, in the Safeway in New Jersey, you know. <laughs> What is he doing now? Um, <laughs> so that, that, that is the context. And yeah. then a few years later, this guy comes up with this idea to ban gay te teachers. And, you know, we've been there, done that. But it was a very, you know, he, was, he himself was a very odd person. Um, eventually, I wound up in the assembly. And so I saw the culture that he came from as, as an elected. Uh, and it was, you know, there's real Republicans in, in Sacramento. You know, we're kind of in a bubble here. Oh, yes. You know, but we do have latent, a lot of latent um, homophobia mm -hmm. in San Francisco, uh, even, to, even to this day. Um, so we were able to use the resources and our success to augment the campaign against, against Prop 6, um, which and, and, and meant knocking on doors and not knowing who was going to be uh, behind the door and you know someone said to me well I knocked on the door and this really tall man came to the door in a, a negligee and a, and, and a boa and uh, I, I said did you say hello Monsignor you know <laughs> <laughs> anything, to, anything to get the votes <laughs> and uh, okay so I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna end it from the mansplaining uh, and uh, <laughs> Turn it over to my two colleagues here, but they can tell you some of the nuts and bolts of what happened when the campaigns against Prop 6 and our victory, our final victory. Yes, Gwen. Uh, Gwen Craig, take, take it away. Well, in 1975, when Tom was already doing such incredible things and achieving such wonderful advances for our community and our movement, I was just arriving in San Francisco and uh, coming out as a lesbian. And... Um, I was very immersed from the very first day, it seems, in the cultural life of the LGBT community. But it wasn't until 1976 uh, when Anita Bryant, um, the orange juice spokesperson, uh, started to um, agitate and get involved in a campaign in Miami, in Dade County, Florida, to be precise, mm -hmm. uh, to overturn uh, their anti-gay, the anti-discrimination um, ordinance that had been passed not too long before. Um, by January of 1977, there were some 40 cities and counties that had enacted uh, anti-discrimination uh, measures that protected uh, lesbians and gay men. They didn't think in those days to add the B and the T. Never. Um, and, um, but um, in Dade County, um, the campaign that Anita Bryant, who had national you know, uh, name recognition, got involved with, started to get national attention. 
And because of the kind of messages that they were promoting, I felt that I really had to do what I thought I would not do in San Francisco, and that was become politically involved. The scary messages were that, um, you know, as we said, that homosexuals, you know, because they cannot reproduce, they must recruit, one of their common themes. Uh, and the one that offended me the most, though, was that they promoted that by our very nature, we were child molesters and pedophiles. And um, this offended me to my core that they, you know, to people like my parents who were just, you know, starting to uh, educate themselves about who I was and who we were, you know, were getting these negative messages and other people like them. And uh, there were a lot of mass meetings and town halls and such that were happening in San Francisco in reaction to what was happening in Dade County. And uh, so I find myself going to those and being a part of that very emotional response that was happening. Um, 1977 was also the year that Harvey Milk was elected uh, as supervisor after an unsuccessful run before. He uh, had a very successful victory and I had um, become a part of his sphere, uh, mainly because out of one of those meetings uh, for uh, reaction to Anita Bryant, I talked a lot about we've got to do something about counteracting what's happening in the media and having a strong media message. And they said, well, I guess we're going to make you media coordinator. <laughs> Never volunteer. And I left there thinking, I don't know how to be a media coordinator, but I went to talk to Harvey Milk. And uh, he sort of scooped me up and took me under his wing and gave me everything that a young African-American lesbian needed to know at that time about how to get your message out. So after becoming involved with him in that way and involved in his campaign, um, when it was time to respond to what was happening in California, uh, Harvey thought of me and my very good friend, Bill Krause, mm -hmm. um, who's no longer with us, I'm very sad to say, um, as people that perhaps uh, would do a good job of managing the San Francisco arm of the No on Six campaign. Um, people went into that campaign with a great deal of pessimism. We had seen in that year um, of 77 um, three cities to overturn their anti-discrimination ordinances in St. Paul, Minnesota, in uh, Wichita, and in uh, Eugene, Oregon. And um, so I think that people were frightened and um, really felt that we had to let out all the stops if we were going to be able to uh, defeat this in California. And so by the time it qualified in 1978 and we put together a campaign, we had overwhelming response. Um, I tell people that by the time we ended, I had a card file of 700 names of volunteers. Um, and they would come and it was, sort of a first, at least a first in a very long time, as far as anyone could remember, that we had a campaign that didn't just go out and drop literature yeah. on every door or pass it out, but canvassed, mm -hmm. which meant that we had our volunteers to knock on the door and actually talk to people. And for a lot of our volunteers, some of whom were not yet out, uh, to their families or certainly to their employers and were grappling so much with, you know, being brave enough to be identified as gay uh, or lesbian. Uh, to knock on a door and know that because you're there talking about Proposition 6, uh, the no side, that the person answering the door probably was going to assume that you were a gay or lesbian person. And... Um, you know, it was it was something that I think we talked about as we trained them to go out, you know, um, you know, we know, you know, you may have some reservations about that, but we encouraged each other. But after they would leave the campaign office, I would just think of all of our volunteers as such brave souls. Um, 
to do this because they felt so committed. They were willing to overcome any trepidation. They just felt it was so important. And uh, it, it would be an incredible experience every Saturday morning when we'd have our rallies to send people out. Um, so through this tireless enthusiasm and volunteer effort, and the fact that we were able to canvas all 500 precincts of San Francisco, something that, uh, you know, the seasoned politicos were just amazed that we were able to do. Uh, because of that effort and the kind of vote totals we were able to put into the pot from San Francisco, uh, I think it contributed greatly to our ultimate victory in defeating the proposition. Um, the um, uh, winning percentage was 58%. Uh, we started the day not thinking that we would succeed, and then we succeeded greatly. And uh, I believe it was uh, around 70-something percent in mm -hmm. San Francisco. I was trying to find the exact number, um, and but that's my recollection. And um, so that's how I came into this fight against Proposition 6. And that's how it somewhat ended for me. Um, the last day officially being with the campaign, uh, we were, Bill and I were packing up the campaign office. And um, it was right on Castro Street between uh, Noe and Sanchez, I believe, if I remember correctly, yes. And uh, Harvey walked in, just strolled in, and said, I just wanted to see how things were going and how you all were feeling. And we had a long talk with him. Uh, Bill had to run out at one point and get something. And I was left uh, in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with Harvey. And I've looked back and realized there were only two times, because Harvey always had a lot of people around him. And there was always buzz and activity. He was constantly on the go, especially during the campaign. So the only time that I really had that one-on-one -on -one was when I met him. And we talked for about two hours about his advice to me. And then uh, on that last day in the campaign office. And since Bill and I left to take a much needed vacation after that and, and flew to Hawaii, it wound up being the last time that I saw mm -hmm. Harvey. Uh, we got the news about his assassination while we were in Hawaii. Uh, another friend who was with us had enough clear-mindedness to get us all organized into the airport and on the plane uh, through incredible maneuvering and we wound up back in San Francisco in time for the candlelight march. Wow. So um, that's my personal story and I think our community's story about uh, how we defeated the No on Six campaign. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Sue? Uh, listening to Tom and Gwen, and the comment that you made about how the politicos were stunned that we carried off such a effective and vital campaign. I think we were a new generation of how to conduct politics. And what we brought to the campaign should really be a template for future struggles. Prop 8 in 2008, which... which Californians voted to remove or to, or to say that marriage was only between a man and a woman did not have that kind of a campaign, and it was voted in. So, you know, lesson learned. We really, I think, aside from our history, want to promote the kind of grassroots, vital uh, campaign that involves people and gets them invested in a political idea and a political community. I actually was uh, in New York in nursing school uh, as Tom and Gwen's activity was rising. And as I was taking my final exams um, in preparation to come out to San Francisco, I'd already decided to do that, was, uh, was when uh, the, um, the Miami-Dade County uh, initiative to remove gay, lesbian rights from, uh, from uh, Miami's uh, laws uh, passed, I had no idea. I had no idea about blood, uh, about Orange Tuesday, the ferocious march through San Francisco, and I've heard actually KPFA's tape of 
following the march. It was so amazing. It's and it's part of an exhibit that I've done. Talk about that later. But I arrived in San Francisco on June 15th, 1977. It was though I stepped off the Greyhound bus on the old in the old terminal on Mission Street and I fell down the rabbit hole. I I was staying in an apartment um, where you know the the folks there were very involved two weeks later um a, an organization called save our human rights had been formed right after orange tuesday and it became the coalition for human rights after that and that's how i initially became involved in in the briggs anti-briggs movement and um this group uh, organized the first anti-Briggs rally on August 20th, 1977, and I was involved in it. It was so exciting. I was working as a nurse, and I and I worked at night. I organized all day, and then I managed to catch a few hours sleep before I'd head back to the hospital. And um, it was it was. Uh, it was like a very ragtag kind of uh, rally, but it was well attended, and it really uh, bode very well that we could actually, you know, from our perspective, you know, get things rolling. Mm-hmm. In uh, I stayed with the Coalition for Human Rights um, in October of '77. A group called the Bay Area Coalition Against the Briggs Initiative was founded out of the coalition, and. Uh, <clears throat> Mainly, it was one of the first organizations uh, to be formed, and really took the took the issue uh, from October of seventy seven to November of seventy eight. And uh, I remember meeting at three thirty Grove, which was the old gay uh, the the gay community center, and um, being involved in that as you know. And I was also on the finance committee of the Coalition for Human Rights, and we. Basically, because we were still in debt, you know, everyone else had sort of shifted over and we were still in to, still trying to raise money. Our final fundraiser, which was hugely successful, was the world premiere of Word is Out in uh, November of 77, That a film, a great film that I think helped, you know, uh, let the world know who we were and what we wanted and the money was donated to the Coalition for Human Rights. The campaign itself, well, actually, 77, 78 was an incredible time to be in San Francisco anyway, because there was a lot going on. The I Hotel and Harvey's election and um, just, you know, amazing, you know, the the uh, the final the, the vote by the, the Board of Supervisors, um, uh, you know, the, that was an anti-discrimination bill that that Harvey had sponsored. I mean, you could not sit you could not wake up without being <laughs> hit with history. And so that's why I felt very fortunate. My my own roles were as a volunteer and so I was part of that grassroots uh army that went out that knocked on doors and uh i actually still have a card that says uh you uh, uh you're you're you, the person you're talking to is is a homosexual and this is what a homosexual is and please let us please know that we are human beings just like you and we would give these cards out door to door the um the astounding work the of of basically Bay Area Coalition worked hand in hand with the No on Six San Francisco in producing a number of very public and very visible events that basically kept the issue on the radar constantly, constantly. That year, you could not turn around without seeing a speak out, a press conference, a rally, church meetings. Um, Girl Scouts organizing for No on Six, you know, kind of thing. So it was just a really one, you know, our our tactic was ourselves, you know, our own organizing, our fresh way of doing things, and the communities that came, you know, behind us in order for our support, which really, you know, until that point, as both of you pointed out, was unprecedented. Churches did not come out for homosexual rights. So it was a really grand time to witness a gathering of support for not just this issue, but for the community, for the movement, and for greater human rights in San Francisco. Really, I think that uh, this campaign was a fulcrum 
that led to other types of movements, other types of uh, initiatives. And I also have to say, you know, I always assumed that the 70s were a grand, happy, you know, sex fest. But I also have talked to people who, who did not live in San Francisco in the 70s, and they said, you know, it was a scary time. The right was rising. I could not be myself. I always felt terrorized. And so this was Joey Kane, who was a good friend of mine. I was terrified um, to think that someone would find out about me. And so for me, the 70s were just a time of terror. And so we can't assume, you know, that that this was that our experience was true we have to look out beyond san francisco beyond our bubble the other one last thing Please, is yeah. you know the funny thing about this is that when the state assembly the state legislature passed uh, a law decriminalizing sodomy uh, which you know any kind of sex other than the heterosexual missionary position you know um the gay community said, oh, "What else you got? We've been, you know, we've been liberating ourselves since 1969, and fine, great, you know. So it was almost seen as anticlimactic, but it took, you know, the the it took the the later years for us to realize both the strength of our community, the power of our politics, and the consequences that our activity had for the entire city and state." Jumping off from what you've been talking about, about this being a, time, a fulcrum and, and a change, um, when I've been going back and looking stuff up on the Briggs Initiative and, and what was going on at that time, I, I was surprised to find out just how strong the moral majority was in this area. Yes. Uh, some of you I know know Rod Diridon, uh former San Jose uh, supervisor. Um, and right around the time of the Briggs Initiative, he was running for the state senate and um, basically the religious right united against him and, and because he supported an anti-discrimination bill in, for San Jose. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, he's talking about you know, going out from church back to his car and all the cars had been leafleted mm -hmm. with messages that he was, he, that he was gay, he's not, um, that he was you know, destroying <coughs> families and such like this. This is not the image, I guess, I had of, Cal of California at that time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but I, I think what I'm hearing from, from all three of you was a generation of people, you know, future leaders came out of this. And that, that a lot of what we're living in today is because of what you folks did back then. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and obviously continue yeah. to do. It, yeah. it, it, it's true. It's, it's all about building blocks and it's all about not being linear because you had success and then the repeals. Mm -hmm. um, but that really fired us up more. That was the mistake that, that we weren't going to see. Because, you know, that was another uh, stereotype of gay people was, you know, we were wimpy and, uh, and God forbid, effeminate. Um, <clears throat> but I don't want to give you the impression that it was all kumbaya either because our own community was split. <clears throat> I know you're going to be shocked by this, but there were some who thought I was too gay. You know, they, they, so maybe somebody more presentable. Unfortunately, there wasn't a, a, a large uh, pool of gay teachers, you know, chomping at the bit to be public. Uh, and, and they did find a, a one or two other, a, a, a wonderful guy named Larry Berner. Uh, from, so he's no longer with us. Uh, uh, we, we used to talk all the time, and I said, well, you're the good gay, and I'm the bad gay. You, you know, we, need, we, we needed each other. So that kind of pissed some of us off, too, yeah. because, you know, we approached things differently in San Francisco and like I say we had already established uh, some kind of benchmark with, with our own school district um, but when the campaign was over and I think this is what both of you are referring to um, we weren't going away and and the murder of milk I think empowered us even more to do in quotes the right thing uh, I do want to say about Harvey and, and, and then Harry Britt um, the established gay leaders, many of them who are now gone, uh, um, they were supporters of Dianne Feinstein. You know, maybe we, we kind of called them A-gays, for lack of a better term. Um, they were not supportive. And they would tell 
our, some of our straight allies on the board of supervisors and no, 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 you know, we don't want this. We don't want uh, um, any kind of uh, issue like gay teachers coming up. Uh, but, you know, Harvey being Harvey was always there. Uh, he knew the value of education. He knew the value of, 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 of teachers in the, in the classroom. Uh, and, you know, he was kind of who we followed. Um, and so when he won his victories, kind of overturned some of the uh, uh, self-hate and uh, cautious uh, advice that people gave. That inspired us. So, you know, his fingerprints are, are, are definitely on this, too. And one more thing, when, when Gwen was talking about this really pissed her off when she heard this, uh, there was no mention of lesbians, because you know, there, there was no lesbians. And that was a whole other battle. Yes. So, you, you know, it's all layered about, and there. Can I just add Sue, that in the Coalition for Human Rights, we were organizing <clears throat> a number of things, and uh, a very good friend of mine brought a 10,000 copies of a leaflet that he had made advertising uh, the event, and it, it had a male runner on it. And we said, excuse us. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> excuse us. We think that the, 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 uh, les gay le the lesbians need to be represented on everything we put out. And he said, well, I have 10,000 leaflets. And we said, shred up. You know? <laughs> and they did. So, you know, it was, it was a struggle. <laughs> <laughs> struggle. <clears throat> I, I want to say something to give a little more context to what Tom was talking about. Uh, it was during the campaign that uh, Tom was featured uh, in a profile in the San Francisco Chronicle uh, as an openly gay teacher. Um, and uh, it made a tremendous impact at that time. I mean, here was, you know, now the face of these gay teachers you're hearing so much With about. a bad perm. Oh, Very just, bad perm. He was so cute. So, who could not love this person? That was the thing. Everyone would look at a picture of Tom Amiano or hear him talk when he was on camera and think, yeah, I'd like him to be my child's kindergarten teacher. That would be fine by me. He really, his, his willingness to come forward in such an incredibly public way, because that was picked up beyond San Francisco, I can mm. tell you, uh, and become sort of the poster boy for our campaign, as it turned out, uh, was also one of those things that made a tremendous difference, because they needed a face. They needed people who were lesbian teachers, gay teachers, school workers. Um, and uh, Tom was one of the few who was willing to do that. This was the mistake that Prop 8 made. Yes. We, we can, which we can talk about in another <laughs> <about> one. <but. laughs> yes. The other thing I want to also add is that in talking about how it, it actually forced us to make great advances, it, it forced us to make connections to other communities and constituencies in San Francisco that we might not have made at least so forcefully and so early in our movement. Um, one, we had tremendous outreach uh, to communities that had not been necessarily friendly. Uh, I took it upon myself that my responsibility was to go to the African-American community with whom we had a lot of problems at that time, at the time of No One Eight campaign too, as we all know from history. And we had a wonderful teacher, Jewel Johnson, yes. uh, who uh, became a part of our campaign. Um, straight African-American woman, was on the school board for years, just wonderful person. She's no longer with us. Yeah. Um, and she took me around to the black churches in San Francisco we, every Sunday. That was our mission every Sunday morning. And she said, now here's what we're going to do. This is the way you have to do it. I'm going to send a note up uh, to the pastor. And during the service, they announce who's in the audience, uh, who's visiting with us today. And you're going to be announced and your affiliation. And so, you know, during the time, they'd say, and we have Gwen Craig, who is with the San Franciscans against Proposition 6. And I remember one pastor said, that's against Proposition 6. <laughs> <laughs> and I would have to stand and sort of wave, and people would go, oh, I see. <laughs> and then I would make it a practice to stand outside 
near or on the steps, whatever was possible. So as people came by, they all could see me. I could say hello to anyone who was willing to say hello. And it was an icebreaker. It was a familiarization. Um, and I think it did a great deal of good in terms of the kind of support that we got electorally. I'm so happy you mentioned Jewel because she was so instrumental. Yes, she um, was. And she took on everybody at this school. And she was the most genteel woman. You know, she she wasn't abrasive or, or even strident, but she 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 was definitely an ally. I remember when she got sworn in, <clears throat> a lot of um, gay folks were in the audience because we were so happy. Hank Wilson was a big supporter of her as yes, well. Yes, yes. And uh, you were there, and um, there was some consternation about her because she had been so friendly to LGBT, mm -hmm. and she actually left the podium, and uh, she had a bouquet of flowers. She came down and shook all of her hands. It was quite a gesture. And then she went back on the podium and this, you know, saying, you know what, I'm up here, but I'm with them. That was quite lovely and so strong. Yes. And I'd also, yeah. I'd like to add yeah. that there's a, currently an exhibit at the GLBT Historical Society yeah. until January 14th that demonstrates the, 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 the kinds of outreach, but also the kinds of welcoming that we received. I mean, it was really a, a two-way street. Um, but it was all interesting to also see the language of outreach. In the 70s, we had, uh, in Bacabi, there was, oh, a nice rainbow outside. How's yeah, one? perfect. Thank um, you. <laughs> uh, we had the Third World Outreach Committee, which meant mm -hmm. we folks were going to outreach to you folks. And that was the style of the 70s, Third World yeah. yeah, I love our vocabulary from the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And indeed, you know, we were able to gather uh, a number of very highly placed endorsers to put in the literature. We put out literature in Spanish, mm -hmm. and, uh, and we had people in Chinatown uh, that we did outreach to. And you can see all of this effort in print at the GLBT Historical Society, which is on 18th Street between Castro and Collingwood. And... In basically concretely see the entire breadth of the campaign and basically contributions from personal collections that we took from the GLBT Historical Society, from San Francisco Public Library's History Room, and, um, and many other sources which were very generous in giving us uh, items to display, including one, uh, a photo of Rink of my spouse's mother wheeling someone in the women's contingent oh. uh, with, a, with a no on six, no on, no to Bacabi sign. So that's one of my treasures. You know about that article that um, Gwen mentioned, uh, it, and to your point of a two-way street, so I was teaching at Buena Vista School, which is in the mission, and a high percentage of Latino kids. And I'd been there for about seven years. And so people, LGBT people say, oh, my God, you know, you know how Latinos are. You know, they're so homophobic and all that. And, you know, we were able to just unhinge people and say, are you kidding? When I went to school the next day, the parents were so happy. They cut the picture out, put it on the refrigerator. This was Tom, you know, who taught my... Yeah, so see how it works, you know, mm -hmm. it's just mm -hmm. all those con concentric, it's not just helping us. And it, really and it cool. seems like it's a double message of yes. both, both, like Gwen was saying, I'm here, look, I'm not a monster, I'm friendly, I can talk to you. It's also though saying, I'm here, you got to deal with me. Yes. That's right. Yes. Even mm -hmm. if we weren't welcome, we stuck yes. around. Yeah. You know, and exactly. it's so true what Sue was saying was that we recognize that we had to do something to educate people who had only seen the image when you said gay was a white male, young, always young. <laughs> and uh, we really needed then more than ever to show the diversity of our community, the wholeness of our community. Uh, everywhere, in San Francisco in particular, but to let people know we are the people that are your children, that you see, that are your teachers, that you shop with and shop from, and that uh, in your everyday life, whether you know it or not, and when you meet us, you'll recognize, I probably know a lot of these people and never knew it. And that started 
perhaps to break down barriers in a way that we were forced to aggressively go and campaign for uh, at that time. And, um, you know, Harvey, when I, when I spoke with him after the campaign, he was particularly jazzed about what the future mm. beheld because of what we had been able to do. And he was, our, and the relationship too that we had formed with Mayor Moscone, mm -hmm. um, who had been very supportive during the campaign, very, very visible. And, um, you know, he just foresaw that, you know, I'm going to be able to work with George. We're going to get some people on commissions. Uh, you know, I think we're going to have to encourage other people to run for office and get on the board of supervisors like me. And, um, you know, he was just brimming with optimism about what lay before us and um, making it, you know, doubly traumatic and heartbreaking to me that he didn't live to see out that vision that he had and to see in spite of what he saw himself doing where we have come now I think he'd be in amazed really mm -hmm. and very proud. Yeah, sorry I was just gonna say I, I, two tragedies one of course just the loss of his life yes. and all the things he would have done but then I would have loved to have had him on this panel yes. today to be talking about <laughs> Wouldn't we all? what he's done yes, over the past yes. four years. Yeah. And, I just, Sue, and then we'll yes, go I just want to point out, I think one of the most, some of the most powerful moments were Harvey's debates, along with Sally Gearhart against John Briggs. Mm -hmm. And one of the tapes we have at the exhibit is, is Harvey debating John Briggs in Orange County. Wow. And half the audience was with Briggs and half the audience was with Harvey. And when, when Briggs started to talk, um, they booed him. Our, our section booed, I wasn't there, but the, the, the LGBT section booed him. And so Harvey said, do not drown us out. Listen, we have to, uh, you know, not only can, do we need to hear what they say, but they need to hear what we say. And I, he directed most of his comments to that side of the room, to teaching them, to bringing their ideas along, the whole idea of, of what Gwen raised in terms of uh, pederasty, child molestation. You know, Briggs did not have the statistics. Sally and Harvey had the statistics, mm -hmm. which also, which basically said 95% of all child abusers and pederasts were heterosexual. You know, and they he said, well, I hadn't heard that. And he goes, well, the FBI, the, you know, the, the, uh, <laughs> you know the, the National Council of Churches, you know, kind of thing. And, and just shaming him repeatedly, I think, was not only yeah. a satisfying experience. Well, he wasn't but, the brightest bulb. No. He no. Was, <laughs> and he, no. Was, he was very buffoony. But yes. the, see, that was the perniciousness of it. Mm -hmm. Because you Oh, he's Elmer Fudd, you know. Mm -hmm. But no, no, he was Satan. <laughs> and uh, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, nobody knew this was going to happen, but uh, Harvey and Sally Garrett were quite distinct personalities. You know, couldn't be different. Uh, you know, Methodist on Sally's part and, and uh, Jewish on Harvey's part. Well, but they had such a chemistry between them. They, I think they charmed each other, yes. uh, even though they came from somewhat opposite. And that, that became very powerful in, mm -hmm. in, the, in, the, in the debates. And I don't know if you remember Priscilla Alexander. Yes. Yeah, yes, yeah. There, again, a lot of what women did for all these was overshadowed because, you know, the men were, well, first of all, the media went to the men, yes. um, but the men also had really strong personalities. Uh, and um, so, I, the, but the infrastructure, and then in Sally's case, the spokesperson role uh, f uh, for, uh, was always based on, on, on the work that women did. Um, and she's still alive. She's up in Albion. Yeah, she's yes. not doing well. No, I know yeah, that. Yeah, I wish she was. She is still with yes, us. We wish her the best right now. Okay. Well, why don't we get some questions from the audience? Let's Michelle? do it. Let's do it. We have 10 minutes left, but uh, we can pack it all in. I wish we could be here for another hour. I could be here yeah. all day and speak yeah. to all three of you. <laughs> oh, of course. I got to bring the mic to you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, my name is Rick Harder. It's not really a question, but just a comment to what you were uh, saying, Gwen, about how your last conversation with Harvey and how he had such hope that this was going to be a continuation. Well, that there was a real setback after that when Feinstein became mayor. There was a real setback, and it wasn't really until about 10 years later that there was a lavender sweep where some of those dreams were realized. 90. Yeah. 1990, yeah. yeah. I will say I've always been critical of, of Feinstein, however... She, in, even if she only associated with 
upper class gay, I'm just using a general term, she did respond to them when the AIDS crisis came. She was one of the few mayors, and so uh, in fairness to all my criticism of her, <laughs> that, that, was, that was significant. And yeah. she appointed Brett. And she appointed Harry. Yes, yes. And, you know, George Moscone had been uh, a very progressive mayor, uh, you know, quite ahead of his time for a lot of people. And uh, Marijuana. He, yeah, marijuana, and he... Um, co-sponsored along with Willie Brown the decriminalization of sodomy uh, because he'd been in the state legislature before he uh, came back and became mayor. And he was Catholic and he, he caught a lot of... Yes, he did. But he withstood it. Yeah, he withstood that. And I, I always have to think also of what our city might have become and things that perhaps wouldn't have happened uh, had George been allowed to serve out his term and, and go on in public life. I'm Bob Weeks. My question relates to the kind of the broader picture in California. It's one thing to get 70% of the votes in the city and county of San Francisco, which here you think is the epicenter of the world, but uh, all the votes are in Southern California. I mean, the great majority of the votes in California are south of the Tehachapi's. Mm -hmm. So do you have any, are, were you working together with them? Do you know what's happening down there? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I'm just interested in that other sort of other part of the picture. For right. that. Yeah, the campaign was definitely in partnership with the statewide campaign. Um, we always felt a particular responsibility that we had to turn out as large of a percentage as we could in San Francisco because here's where we were most likely to get a strong support if we got it at all. It would probably come from San Francisco and the Bay Area. So, um, you know, we felt that what we did was perhaps most important, maybe that was some ego. But in the end, we did win in a lot of places uh, that we didn't expect. And in fact, the initiative was defeated in John Briggs' home county of yeah. Orange. Yeah. And um, the Valley, LA yeah. Valley, when that came in, you know, the technology, we got our results by phone and everyone was waiting and then the guy on the phone or the woman on the phone would then put it up on chalk on the chalkboard That's and right. it looked so terrible people were weeping and then LA came home for us I think that's because of the endorsements that we got. We even got Reagan to say no on six. Yeah. I, I right. wanted to ask about oh that. Oh, my God. How, how, yeah. do, you, do you think that moved a lot of the, maybe yeah, the moderate yeah, Republicans? Yeah. Oh, enough. Yeah, yeah. no, it was it definitely uh, significant. And, and Jerry Brown, you know, who was a little, a little you know, he vetoed the AB1 um, bill that Agnos had supported. Uh, you know, he, if you see the film, I love it. He leans over to Jer Jimmy Carter and goes, it's okay to say no on six. Yeah. And so he goes, no on six. And then the crowd went, yay. <laughs> yeah. so, so we had a lot of epiphanies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think we have another question in the back. Uh, my name is Rich Russo. I'm the current director of the San Francisco LGBTQ Speakers Bureau to put on record that 40 years later it is still going strong and the power <laughs> of telling our stories and putting faces to our communities continues to be uh, paramount and powerful. Yes. I'm curious what politically might we, especially those of us who maybe are younger and aren't familiar with the Briggs uh, successes, our, our success over Briggs, what can we take from that now in a time when maybe politically things look a little gray? Well, I think the, 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 the issue of resilience um, and that this is not linear in, the, in any way, that sometimes you do take a few step backwards, you know, what's his name, Pat Pence and Caligula in the White House, you know, and, <laughs> and, and uh, that there are nuances. What, what is one of the things we really fought for uh, because of self-determination was, uh, uh, you know, gays in the military. Uh, and then what happened? Now we have a military that accepts gay people, but they're on the border asking maybe to that's not what we meant when we said there should be gay people <laughs> in the military so uh you know those kind of lessons and uh, i see a great passing of the torch that's happened um and for a lot of young people it's not an issue which isn't to minimize the fact that there's still a lot of oppression and, and violence towards uh, gay people particularly women and, and transgender uh but you know, to understand, you know, understanding history, what they say, you know, uh, you understand the past, so you don't, you don't repeat it. So I mean, keeping that message out there and, and public education is a big, big resource for you know un undoing uh, uh, through omission, 
uh, whether it's African-American history or now uh, our immigrant movement, immigrant rights movement, and certainly for LGBT people, uh, and to make sure that those, the people you elect on school boards you know, are not reading the Bible and then doing policy, uh, you know, which still happens. Uh, and let me take up that thread. You know, as, uh, as first an activist, but then I became a historian in the 90s, um, it is important, uh, we, what, we call is you, what we call U.S. history is called the grand narrative, which means what is the big picture mm. of U.S. history? And the big picture has to be inclusive. And, you know, the, basically trying to fit um, different strands of history that are coming through in your history classes is a challenge. Mm -hmm. But it's also very rewarding because people respond when uh, the different experiences become available to them. In, uh, in my U.S. history class before 1877, I teach uh, about Sarah, Charity and Sarah, who were two lesbians who lived in um, Maine, uh, in the early early nineteenth century, everybody and everybody charity always uh, people called charities a uh, charity Sarah's husband, and it was really clear that this was a a lesbian couple with a with a kind of traditional labels, and just have to show people, you know, this is a historical trend. This isn't just you know that we didn't come out of the box like this, you know, kind of thing, and so you know needing to pass that on as history as English, as sociology, as science, you know? Um, this, is, this is really where we live as educators. If I can just speak to the elected role, uh, the elected role is similar to what you just said. You can get somebody and they can okay gay marriage and uh, things like that that are important to us in, in, through a law, but then by isolating us and putting us in that silo, uh, they're ignoring everything else. Gay people also need housing. So some of the people who say, look, this is what I did. The gay community likes this. I got an endorsement from Alice B. Toklas. Yeah, but you voted against health care for gay people. You voted, you know, by, by not supporting those issues um, that are progressive and important to everyone, you're not really helping LGBT. It's just kind of lip service. And we, we deserve more than that. And we also need to, and to your question, what you tell is we, uh, keep calling us out. You know, don't accept a crumb. Hi, I'm Pat Tibbs, and I just want to feed back to you how powerful your message was to me. What was happening then was teaching me in the middle of my life, wait a minute, you're not straight. <laughs> what are you doing? Get your act together. I lived in John Boehner's congressional district, born and raised. So didn't have a lot of examples that were out, but your message came through the media, even to that district, and it made me think, whoa, so you helped me come out. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That's what Harvey was always aiming for. <laughs> he had a kid in Altoona, Pennsylvania. Yes, yes. He wanted us to have a message that reached beyond San Francisco and reached those places where there was less support and less community and more courage and awareness was needed. That was the point. And uh, he felt that was more important than what we did here locally. Yeah, give him hope in Pakistan and Saudi Arabia yes. and all the Uganda. I mean, you got to give – hope is still very necessary. Hope is still very, very much necessary, which is why I'm going to ask the very last question. Okay. Um, and the question really brings us – to, to hear now, uh, 40 years later, and to Tom's point, you know, homophobia, transphobia still exists and exists yes. here in San Francisco. And um, so as brief as you can, it, you know, we, we are up against a lot, I think. We've got Gorsuch and Kavanaugh who have been appointed to lifetime terms to the Supreme Court. There are six LGBTQ cases in which uh, the way that the court can rule on them can really peel back the tremendous amount of progress that we've made over the, the 40 years in, in Prop 6 being uh, one of the cases that we're looking at today. So in your opinion, and, and I know that we've thrown out some things already, but 
today you are a great example of how each and every one of us can participate in, in this resistance and, and fight back as a grassroots volunteer activist, as somebody who's working directly in a, a campaign, somebody who's an elected fish an elected official, uh, a parent, a teacher, and all that good stuff, right? We all matter. Um, how much of what you did 40 years ago and that perfect storm to combat something like Prop 6, how much of that still applies to where, what we need to do today in order to keep going? You know, my answer always to that question is, is of course, you pay attention and you learn and uh, the thing, one of the things that Milk always said was, you know, keep looking over your shoulder, I think, because the Holocaust informed him very much, you know, in his philosophy of life and never, you know, so who knew that there'd be Trump when we were all dancing at the club because Harvey got elected or Prop 6 got, to, who knew that there would be a, a Trump and to, and to continue. And the other thing is that it's a little shallow, but yet it's the PR angle. I think right now, um, there is, like we're are we we're kind of the flavor of the decade, you know. Everybody, oh, I have an LGBT friend. Oh, I went to a wedding, and oh, and 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 of course the tremendous tr uh, strides um, that trans that transgender people have made. They it is tr tremendous because it's part of the the narrative now. But there's also great danger. Yes. So, but getting those kind of allies, powerful allies, even if they are movie stars and we think they live shallow lives, you know, I'd, I'd rather have them out there saying, even Caitlin, you know, caused something that was upsetting, but at the same time, I think it did move it forward. And then always, always, always the grassroots, always, always bring it home, always bring it home. Uh, that kind of thing, yeah. I believe, uh, I teach legal and constitutional history at San Francisco State. One of my heroes is a man named Gerald Rosenberg, who's a political science, uh, political scientist, I believe, in, in Pennsylvania. And he believes that as activist, as the, the, he's mainly a scholar of the Supreme Court, as activist as the court can be in any direction, that it really has no enforcement power. Mm. As we learned from Brown versus Board of Education in 54, it took a federal law 10 years later to desegregate the nation. And so we have to be careful about acceding too much power to them because we do shape those institutions. And even though those creeps have been nominated uh, and, and confirmed, the fact is that we still hold um, so much political power we still have the ability, you know, resist. Absolutely. Resist is the word. And resistance is very telling and can work. Unfortunately, sometimes it works against us. So that's what, what we have to be mindful of, as Tom says. But our resistance will shape the future and give us the, the future that we want. Um, I thought about this a lot when the... Um Proposition 8 campaign was going on here in California, and I think um, some of the things that maybe should have been done a little more during that time, and what we have to think going forward is that when we do have challenges, like Briggs Initiative was, like Proposition 8 was, the marriage initiative, we have to be willing to go into places that aren't necessarily Thank comfortable. You. Thank you. We have to go where we aren't necessarily welcome. And, you know, I, I hate to use confront. I don't mean in a way that we have to be aggressors. We need to, um, to become a part and be a face and be willing to open dialogues that maybe aren't comfortable, but they have to be done. It seemed that during the No on 8 campaign, I kept hearing, well, we're going to have a problem with the black churches. The black churches are just intractable on this, and so let's just go elsewhere. So Wrong. Wrong. Opportunity missed. Uh, maybe that pastor is going to continue in his hard-headedness, but you've picked up so many people along the way that make a difference for that particular challenge at the time and for the future going forward. Um, and I think what I am most encouraged about is that outside of San Francisco and this wonderful little home we have where we've advanced so far so early, uh, change is happening. 
432 openly LGBT candidates ran in this last election, the midterm election. Over half of them were elected. That's very encouraging. That's very hopeful. And uh, they're in places that it took um, a lot of challenge. It took a lot of bravery. It took a lot of being able to talk to people who came from not understanding us and who we are and helping them, helping them to see the reality of our lives. And so that's what I think we have to take going forward. Keep doing that. I love the transgender uh, woman who who ran in Virginia because, you know, when, as she won, they wanted her to talk about, you know what? And she said, no, I talked about the bus routes. You know that uh, yes. uh, that happens on the freeway? You know, real issue. Great. Perfect. Dan- Danica Room. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. I want to thank you all for joining us here at the Commonwealth Club. And of course, thank you to our wonderful, wonderful, amazing, courageous panelists who are still with us today here to talk and here to teach and there to help us remember. So thank you to Tom, to Gwen, to Sue, John, who moderated today, and to Rich and the San Francisco LGBTQ Speakers Bureau for helping us put this program together and for providing lunch. Again, the Michelle Miao Show tapes here weekly at the Commonwealth Club. We've got a great program, two last programs coming up. So if you can make it, December 13th is a look back at this year we launched. And some of the speakers who came will be here with us to celebrate. It'll be a conversation with James LaDuca from Salesforce on equality. And then we'll have a party afterwards. And then December 17th is a special screening of Donlin, the film, which focuses on the uh, United States' participation in rehoming Native American children into foster homes, which particularly were white families. So check the listing if you're interested in a future program at commonwealthclub.org. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, John.